The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Wednesday edition of PFTPM. Week 2 continues of our five-week PFT Live hiatus. It'll be over before you know it. Tomorrow, no PFTPM, my annual physical. Again, if you're on the wrong side of 40, like I have been for 18 years now, make sure you're getting yourself checked out once per year. There is wisdom to it. Your family needs you around. Presumably, they need you around. Presumably, they want you around. If both of those answers are yes, make sure you do what you have to do to stay around as long as possible. Travis Kelsey has been sticking around Kansas City for a long time. That's where I'm going to start today. I was fascinated by some of his comments in a lengthy profile in Vanity Fair. Once a football player makes it to Vanity Fair, that tells you that that football player has crossed over beyond the usual helmets and shoulder pads existence. And for Kelsey, it really happened when he became the host of Saturday Night Live after Super Bowl 57, early in this very lengthy article, but which is very well done, but it is very long. And for those of us with short attention spans, it takes some effort to get through it all. But early on, it's clear that this SNL thing was a work in progress. It didn't just fall out of the sky. It was something he wanted, something he had hoped for, something he made a goal, and he worked and he worked and he worked to get the attention of the appropriate people at SNL to get on the show. He had to cozy up to Lorne Michaels at a post-show party some months earlier than that. The Chiefs needed to win the Super Bowl, and then Lorne Michaels had to get beyond the fact that Travis Kelsey is not a quarterback because typically they want quarterbacks to host quarterbacks, ideally from a team that has just won the Super Bowl. But Travis Kelsey was able to get the assignment, and he did a great job. And it's clear when you read this, he's got ideas and plans beyond football, whether it's beyond broadcasting, beyond podcasting, getting into acting. There's a lot of things that you can tell he wants to do. And he also seems to be intentionally cryptic about what he would like to do because, hey, if you put out there what your goal is and you fail to reach it, you end up looking like a failure. So it's kind of like having political aspirations. You never say them out loud in the event that you don't achieve them. I think Kelsey understands whatever he's planning to do may be different from what he ultimately ends up doing. So I tell the world, this is what I want to do because that may not happen, but it may be something else that ends up being just as impactful and lucrative for Travis Kelsey. Lucrative is not how we would describe his current contract. And That was the football stuff that got the bulk of my attention when he pivoted to talking about how much he makes relative to other pass catchers, not tight ends, but great pass catchers. The top of the receiver market technically is 30 million per year, although to get to 30 million, there's some back end fluff in the Tyreek Hill contract that he won't earn. Still, It's generally accepted that 30 is the top. 27, 28 is more realistic. Regardless, Travis Kelsey's at 14 as his average annual compensation. 14. He's at half of what 
the best receivers are making, and he's in the same category as the best receivers. And he deals with that in a variety of ways. One, they win. And when you're winning, that goes a long way toward looking past some of the business things that may be bugging you. If they weren't winning, he might feel differently. Of course, the fact that they're winning and the fact that he has such a key role in their winning is one of the things that highlights how underpaid he is. If they were just a middle-of-the-pack team, we wouldn't be saying Travis Kelsey should be getting a lot more money than what he's getting. But if he was putting up the numbers that he puts up, see, that's where it becomes the dog chasing its tail. He's putting up those numbers and helping the team win. It's rare to see a guy like that put up the kind of numbers he'd put up without the team winning. But he's just a piece of the broader effort to win. And by keeping his pay down, I mean, his production would still be what it is. But by keeping his pay down, they have money to pay to others. And also by keeping his pay down, by keeping Patrick Mahomes' pay down, it makes it easier to go to others and say, look, two most important players on the team aren't taking market value. And this may be the core of whatever is going on with the Chiefs and Chris Jones, because it's entirely possible Chris Jones is saying, I don't care that Patrick Mahomes is underpaid. I don't care that Travis Kelsey is underpaid. That's their problem. I'm trying to get paid. And look, I've got a limited number of years when I can play at this level. And that window is going to start closing on me because of the pounding that I take, the physical wear and tear. I'm not protected by the rules that protect quarterbacks. I'm not protected by the rules that protect receivers and pass catchers. So that, that, that theory that others will happily take less because the two best players on the team are taking less may not apply to the third best player or, or maybe second best player or second most important player on the team, frankly. It could be Mahomes, Jones, Kelsey, not Mahomes, Kelsey, Jones. But it's just important to keep that in mind as the Chiefs try to make Chris Jones happy about his current contract situation. Kelsey tolerates it in part because Mahomes tolerates it, I believe. He didn't say that. He wasn't asked that in this Vanity Fair article. But I think it goes a long way toward making Travis Kelsey content or at least not actively discontent because Mahomes deals with the fact that he's not the highest paid quarterback in football, even though he should be. But still, Kelsey, at roughly half of what the top receivers are making, there's reason for him to be upset. And he admitted at times it feels like he's being taken advantage of. And the Chiefs have found this sweet spot, this balance, where they're able to get by with having some of the best players in football, not at market value, They had a guy who clamored for market value and they traded him away and it worked out. They won the Super Bowl in the first year without him. And Kelsey mentions that. You see Tyree Kill go get 30 million a year, but he didn't win. We won. Now they made it to the playoffs and frankly, they would have been better if their quarterback had been able to play the full season, but that's a different issue. The Chiefs won without Tyree Kill. Tyree Kill didn't win without the Chiefs. So that helps Kelsey kind of hold it together. But he's 33. How many more years does he have left? And he intends to finish out his contract. Well, here's the reality. If he ever gets to the point where his production isn't matching the salary he is getting, they're going to tear that contract up instantly. So Kelsey has come to terms with the business side of football by enjoying the winning. And for the teams that are winning, that goes a long way 
to providing an alternative to actually paying them. It's like a bank where the bank makes everyone a vice president because we're going to give you a title in lieu of giving you more money. Everyone's a vice president, vice president of this, vice president of that. Hey, I'm not getting paid a lot of money, but I'm a vice president. Travis Kelsey's got Super Bowl rings. He's going to fight for his right to party. And he is getting to party, but he's not fighting for his right to full and appropriate compensation. And Chiefs fans get upset when I point this out because they just want to win. They don't care about how much money Travis Kelsey is making. They don't care about how much money Patrick Mahomes is making. From the perspective of the average fan, they're making more than I am. So I don't care. Boo-hoo. Oh, you're only making $14 million. How will you ever survive? That's the reaction. But come on, folks, take a step back. Is it really fair that the best receivers are making twice what Travis Kelsey is making? Is it fair to expect Chris Jones to take less just because other players on the team are taking less? Without him, they don't win Super Bowl 54 and they don't get to Super Bowl 57. We've made that case in the past, even with Mahomes and everyone else. Without Chris Jones, who freaked out Jimmy Garoppolo in the fourth quarter of Super Bowl 54 and who single-handedly harassed Joe Burrow and kept him from going down the field and winning the game late in January that would have sent the Bengals, not the Chiefs, to the Super Bowl. Without him, they don't have those two rings. So... I fully support the efforts of players to get everything they can while they can because they have a limited window to do so. They have no equity. This is it for their life. Unless you are Travis Kelsey and you're going to end up being the next Rock or Arnold Schwarzenegger. Who else is ever going to pay you anything close to what they're paying you to play football if you're a great football player? This is it. Get what you can while you can. Derek Carr has been talking a lot lately. Now, I guess it's just a bunch of interviews he's been doing. This is the dead spot where there aren't press conferences. And I'm not on the Derek Carr beat at PFT. Others have been writing these stories. But, you know, if you talk enough, you're eventually going to contradict yourself. It wasn't that long ago that he said he felt apologetic to the Raiders for not giving them his best last year. It's hard to reconcile that with Carr in our more recent post, being upset with the Raiders because he got benched and they made his wife cry. Well, if his wife was upset by Derek Carr being benched, but Derek Carr is remorseful to the Raiders for not giving them his best, there's a chain of common sense logic in there that I think is lost on the Carr family. And I've always felt that Derek doesn't understand the business. He might now. But I remember when, and this may have been what caused him to block me on Twitter. I don't know. It seems like he blocks anyone for any reason. But he made a comment one time about he will be the starting quarterback of the Raiders for as long as he chooses to play football. And I remember when I saw that, and I thought, Derek, you don't understand how this business works. We were just talking about with Travis Kelsey. The moment that a player is no longer living up to what his compensation package would suggest that's when the team rips it up and moves on. Remember when he got that big contract from the Raiders last year and all the information robots were fawning over what a great deal it was, $40 million a year, this, that, and the other thing. And I got the contract and I said, whoa, hang on, everybody, time out, time out. Your battery may be turned upside down, information robot, because this contract looks like a one-year deal. 
for about 25, 26, 27 million. And the Raiders can tear it up after one year if they choose to do so. Oh, they'll never do that. Oh, you're just trying to make something out of nothing. Oh, you're just looking to make clicks. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. That's how it goes. And then when you're ultimately right, they, they forget that you were right. They just move on to the next thing that they want to tell you you are ultimately going to be wrong about, like the possibility of the 49ers and the Rams and a tug of war next year for Kirk Cousins. But I saw it. I saw it coming. Carr had to play well enough last year to get the Raiders to choose to keep him with a new coach and a new GM in place. They chose not to keep him. And off he goes. And so, look, I understand there's a lot of personal feelings that get tied up in this. And I understand that his wife who maybe believed that he was going to be the starting quarterback for the Raiders as long as he chose to be because he's been saying it for years. Maybe he had never bothered to explain to her how the business works because he didn't understand it himself. This is how the business works. This is why I say get what you can while you can because you may not be able to get anything before too long. Now he lands in New Orleans and he said some things about being happy to be with a more stable organization, firing some shots at the Raiders. I mean, it's not, well, I mean, look, the Saints right now are, Middle of the pack, maybe just a little bit above. They're still finding their way post Sean Payton. I wouldn't say they're among the 10 best franchises in the NFL right now. They're in a better spot to compete than the Raiders because they're in the NFC South. The Raiders are in the AFC West, tougher conference, tougher division. But I don't know that the Raiders right now are dramatically worse than the Saints. But look, Carr is processing in real time. This is why I love the human drama of the NFL. He's dealing with it in front of our very eyes and ears. This idea of being rejected by a team, being taken in by a new team, trying to understand how it all happened, whose fault it is, who to be upset with, who to not be upset uh, with. And at the end of the day, this is just how it works. This is the way the business works. They love you and they will pay you handsomely as long as you are doing the job at the appropriate level. The minute you're not, they're going to find somebody else. They don't care who it is. They don't care what the person has done. And it's not what have you done for me lately. It's what are you doing for me right now? And what can I expect you to do for me tomorrow? That is the test. And under that standard, the Raiders decided late in the 2022 season, get this guy off the field before he suffers an injury that will keep him from passing a physical before his salary for next year becomes fully guaranteed. Get him off the field, put him in bubble wrap because we're going to cut him if we can't trade him. And they're never going to be able to trade him. That was never going to happen. He was always going to be cut the moment that that he was benched by the Raiders because and and look, they wouldn't have benched him. They would have let him finish the year, I firmly believe, if he didn't have that guarantee for injury that would have become fully guaranteed. If he had no guarantees and it was a full flipping of the switch right after the Super Bowl for 40 million to kick in, they would have let him finish the year. But that injury guarantee is the reason they benched him. They would have just finished the year and we wouldn't have known anything about it. They wouldn't have let on that they had any misgivings about Derek Carr. It would have made it easier to try to trade him. You know, if we had no idea that they were thinking about cutting him, you have a better chance of finding a trade partner. But the teams out there that were approached about a possible trade for Derek Carr, they knew he's eventually going to be cut. So to perpetuate the ruse of we still want this guy, if they wouldn't have had that injury guarantee that they were concerned about becoming a full guarantee, if he suffered an injury that he wouldn't have recovered from before the time came to cut him, they would have left him on the field. See, that's just part of understanding the business. It's nothing personal. It's business. And it's always business. No matter how personal it may be to the individual players, it's always business. And that's why for the players, 
the business interest and objective should be get what you can while you can. Another item related to the Chiefs that I saw today, Brandon Graham of the Eagles talking about the field conditions in Super Bowl 57, and we've been down that road. We've plowed that ground literally and figuratively multiple times. But it reminded me of something that I don't think I've really focused on, because what it does is it goes back to the whole turf versus grass debate. And the top five conspiracy theorist in me would say, hey, you know, at a time when players are clamoring for grass, let's give them a bad grass field and say, hey, you wanted grass. I I don't think that is the explanation for this. I don't think the NFL would deliberately sabotage a Super Bowl with a crappy grass field just to prove a point that artificial turf is better than grass. And I've said all along when grass versus turf comes up. You want grass, but you also want the grass to be properly maintained and presented, properly grown, properly watered, properly handled, so it isn't a slippery mess when it's time to play a game on it. And we know that it was in Super Bowl 57. I mention all that because I've heard multiple times now that in the league meetings that have transpired since Super Bowl 57, the commissioner has been asked point blank about the field by one of his constituents, one of the owners, one or more of them. And the response is it's the player's fault for not wearing the right shoes. That's how the league internally is dealing with any tough questions that come from the membership, the owners of the teams about the condition of Super Bowl 57's field. It's the player's fault. It's not our fault. And look, I understand that's organizational dynamics and people pass the buck all the time, but come on, come on. Is anyone really buying the idea that that it's on the players and the teams to know when to change cleats? And don't you think they did at some point? Haven't we seen the stories that they did? I don't think the cleats mattered. The field was horrible, and it was the league's fault. The premier event, the marquee annual NFL event, 100 million plus, tune in and watch, and it was undermined by the quality of the field. And it definitely hurt the Eagles. The Eagles, see, Harry Roseman cracks me up because when he resorts to his talking points on any potentially controversial issue, if he recites them enough, people who get it understand what he's really saying, you know? He under, they, they understand that he's truly upset about it because he keeps saying the same thing over and over again, maybe through gritted teeth. But he took the high road on the quality of the field, and he says it, and he says it, and he says it. And I think the average person who gets it would say, he's not happy. They're not happy. But, 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 but what does it prove? Complaining about it. You just look like you have sour grapes. You look like a sore loser. But by reciting the same line over and over again, the message is, We know this was a problem. We're not happy with the outcome, but we have opted to craft this same statement we're going to use over and over and over again. And if we use it enough times, people will know that this isn't how we really feel. This is just the PR quote that we have been advised to provide when the topic comes up. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. 
it probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. The topic keeps coming up regarding the NFL PA selection process for a new executive director. It's bothered me for a while now. And I've been historically very pro-union, pro-player. I've tried to understand the challenges of running a union full of players who aren't as engaged, aren't as willing to go without playing football and getting paid to play football as maybe they could be or should be. It's not an easy job. It's not an easy union to run, especially when you're dealing with the NFL and its power and its wealth and its influence. There is more of a David versus Goliath field than there should be. Now, David ultimately won, but you get my point. The the playing field has never felt even and equal to me. And this selection process for a new executive director is critical to maybe trying to make the playing field a little more even, or at least keeping it from becoming even more askew in favor of the NFL. And I think what's happened is the union is so freaked out by the possibility that the owners could try to put their thumb on the scale to influence the process, to have their chosen candidate be the one who wins, to figure out who the finalists are, to cozy up to one of them, to corrupt one of them, to transform one of them into some sort of Manchurian candidate that would then make it easier for the league to have its way with the union. I think the union's gotten so caught up in that that they've lost sight of reality. I don't think the league cares. I think the league understands it doesn't matter who runs the union. As long as the rank and file are not going to go with the nuclear option ever, it doesn't matter who's in charge because there isn't a human being out there who can convince players to go without missing games and missing checks in the name of trying to get something better for whatever's left of their career, but ultimately for everyone else who is still to come. So I think the union's obsession with secrecy is unrealistic because I don't think, and I've heard this. Now, it could be that that's what the league would say, but I've heard they just don't care. They are content to deal with whoever the executive director is because the system is already stacked in their favor. The owners will go without a year of football without batting an eye. The players won't go without a football for a week. They just won't. We saw it in 2011. At the end of the day, the players caved and took the NFL's financial offer so they wouldn't miss game checks, so they wouldn't miss games. With all that said, this obsession with secrecy has created a situation where the union has to be careful not to violate its own constitution. Ben Fisher of Sports Business Journal reported last Thursday that there'll be a new executive director by this Thursday, June 29. Since then, he's tweeted there's a provision in the constitution that says the selection committee, when they're looking for a new executive director, must identify no fewer than two and no more than four candidates to the player representatives, the one player representative per team. Those must be disclosed at least 30 days before the vote is taken on who the next executive director will be. The player representatives are in the dark. The player representatives don't know, unless they know and they're lying to their constituents about knowing. Because 
as we reported over the weekend, players are trying to find out what's going on, and the player representatives are saying, we don't know. Unless they all know and they've taken a complete and total vow of secrecy, they do know, and they have known. I think it's impossible, though, to hold that together. 32 player representatives informed as to who the finalists are, but not saying anything to anyone, including the men who voted for them to be player representatives. That's that's a tough one for me to to accept, just given the way that human beings operate, because one of those 32 people is going to tell somebody. They're going to tell a player. They're going to tell an agent. They're going to tell someone in the media. They're going to tell a friend. Somehow, some way, that name is going to come out. Those names are going to come out, at least two, no more than four. So I don't know what's going on. And I asked the union earlier today. I contacted their PR, and I'm just checking now to see if I've heard anything back. I have not. I don't expect to. They don't want to tell anybody anything. At some point, you got to tell people something under your own constitution. Unless you're going to violate it, you've got to tell the board of player representatives, 32 representatives of the players on their teams, who these candidates are. And there is a public interest in this. Those of us who are stakeholders in the game want there to be an effective union to counter the things the NFL will try to do because we don't want the stage set for a lockout or a strike. We don't want the players to get so riled up that they will go a year without football. We want football, and we want there to be a healthy balance between labor and management. And that's why I think, for the same reason, we would be interested in knowing who the finalist for the commissioner's job would be. We have an interest in knowing who the finalist for the executive director job will be or are. And it occurred to me last night. Okay, so they violate. Let's say, let's say hypothetically, this is all hypothetical. They violate the Constitution by not disclosing the names of the finalists for the executive director job at least 30 days before the vote. So what happens next? Who who has standing to sue if there would be litigation over this? I look at it this way. If all of the player representatives are fine with it and the players are fine with it, who's going to do anything about it? Who's going to fight it? And if anyone was inclined to fight it later... Wouldn't they already be fighting it now? Wouldn't they be saying, I'm a player representative and I think it's bullcrap that they haven't disclosed the names of these finalists for executive director when the vote's coming up next week? It's just a weird situation. And I understand why the union is taking the approach, but I think it's unrealistic And I think at a certain point, it's counterproductive because it creates the impression that someone is up to something, that someone's trying to pull an inside job. I'm not saying that that's what's happening, but with extreme secrecy, it invites speculation that someone is trying to rig this thing in their favor and they don't want anyone to get in the way of it. They don't want us meddling teenagers to try to do anything about it. We'll see. We'll continue to follow it. I'll continue to press for answers. I think we're entitled to know who the candidates are. We're entitled to vet them as the media. They've been vetted by the selection committee. The media needs to have an opportunity to look into who these candidates are and who would be the best. And we're allowed to chime in. And the players can either be influenced by what we have to say or not. And they can worry about the NFL trying to put their thumb on the scale or not. But all of this happening in darkness is good for no one. And again, even if it undermines what I have 
manage to maintain with the union a healthy, respectful, productive relationship. If it undermines it, it's not my problem because I'm not the one that's potentially violating the terms of my own constitution and trying to do a very important piece of business in complete and total silence and secrecy. The issue of player gambling continues to be one of the biggest concerns for the National Football League, as evidenced by the fact that Colts cornerback Isaiah Rogers, according to Adam Schefter of ESPN, is expected to be suspended for the full season by the end of the week. Now, we knew this was coming based upon the reporting that's previously been done and the fact that Rogers basically admitted to doing the thing he reportedly did, betting on football reportedly betting on Colts games even. But the thing from Schefter's tweet that stands out, a handful of NFL players, including Rodgers, is expected to receive season-long suspensions. A handful. Well, I don't know, a handful. That's That's five or less, two, three, four, five. I don't know. I don't know what a handful means, but there's other names out there we currently don't know about. There was a report from The Athletic several weeks back that another Lions player was under investigation. Could that be one of the people? But it's going to be another wave of suspensions to match the one we saw in April. And it just underscores yet again the fact that the NFL has failed to properly educate players in the past on what the rules are. At first, I thought it was a Lions problem. I thought it was a team problem. I think what it is, is it's a league problem that some teams have identified and rectified on their own. And the teams that just trusted the league was getting it right are the ones that possibly are being burned by this. The teams that didn't realize we should supplement, we should rewrite the policy, we should do our own session so the players have no ambiguity whatsoever. Because that's the one thing that's been very clear to me. There's too much ambiguity out there about what players can and can't do. It has not been as clear as it needs to be. They're now making it more clear, and even then, they still have more work to do. But the tension that I have always detected, now that I've really gotten my my brain around how this works, the difference between an employer who truly wants employees to understand the policies and abide by them, and the employer who is simply concerned about getting the piece of paper signed by the employee, acknowledging that the employee has received the policy, regardless of whether the employee truly understands the policy. I feel like the league has been too far in that camp. We just need to show that we told them. Now I hope we're getting to the point where the league and the teams make it a priority to make sure they fully understand it. And there's too many fans out that say, oh, they should understand it. Oh, they should understand it. It's not as easy as it sounds. And the league makes it more complicated with the mixed messages that they send. The easy solution, as I've said many times, Just tell all NFL personnel, non-players and players, you cannot wager on sports anywhere, anytime, ever, until your employment with the NFL or one of its teams is over. That's what the rule is for all non-players. There's no reason to not make that the rule for players because the league has full control over this policy. It's not part of the collective bargaining agreement. They can make whatever rules they want. And these suspensions are a reminder that... If you're going to have two sets of rules, you better be sure the players know what the contours of the rules are, and you better explain things in an understandable way, and you better take a step back and ask yourself, does it make sense to have any gray area, or should it just be the simplicity of black and white? Do not gamble on sports ever, anytime, any place, 
anywhere. I feel like if that was the rule, and if it had been clearly and plainly communicated, maybe some of these suspensions wouldn't have happened because players would have known we can't bet on sports at home, at work, anywhere. So hopefully the NFL will get it together because at some point, unless they're going to brush it under the rug, which you know some would suspect that maybe they would do, at some point, if they don't get this right, there's going to be a superstar that's out for a whole year simply because there wasn't enough done to make sure that that player understands what he can and can't do when it comes to gambling. One last item for today. And tomorrow is the anniversary of the event that we commemorate every year. And tomorrow will be the 40th anniversary of the passing of Chiefs running back Joe Delaney. He was the Offensive Rookie of the Year in 1981 with 1,000 yards plus rushing. Dynamic player, war number 37 for the Chiefs. And it was in June of 1983. And I had just graduated high school. And look, those of us who have graduated high school can remember that feeling. Your life's going to go on forever. You're invincible. We did some stupid ass stuff during that summer of 1983 that I'm surprised all of us lived through, frankly. But we had that that very rare moment where your life is an infinite horizon and nothing can prevent you from getting there. And oh, by the way, that horizon's never going to come. Maybe you're just going to manage to be the first person who lives forever. So it is quite the disruption to that vibe when you see in the newspaper. And yes, kids, there were newspapers. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table with a bowl of frosted flakes, and I saw that Joe Delaney had drowned while trying to save three children in Louisiana, three children who had gotten into some man-made reservoir pond and It was a hazard and they shouldn't have been in there and they started to struggle and they began to drown. And Joe Delaney, without hesitation, even though he couldn't swim, went in to try to save those children. One ultimately was saved. Joe Delaney perished. He had three young children of his own at the time. He was extremely young. We bring it up every single year because one thing I learn is every year there are more fans of the NFL, who weren't aware of Joe Delaney's story, who become aware of Joe Delaney by virtue of the fact that we keep it alive every single year. So this is 40 years, June 29, 1983. They have Joe Delaney in the ring of honor at Arrowhead Stadium. I took a picture of it and tweeted it when we were there for the Jaguars-Chiefs playoff game. I know that the Hall of Fame is based on on on-field accomplishments, There have been arguments in the past for guys like Pat Tillman to have a bust in the Hall of Fame, even though he didn't have the career accomplishments to get there. But you'd like to think that if you take your family to Canton, Ohio, and you're taking them through one at a time, the busts, if you're going to have O.J. Simpson in there, it'd be nice to balance it out with Joe Delaney. So we continue to extend, after all these years, our condolences to the Chiefs, Joe Delaney's family. It's it's great that people work so hard to remember him. I just feel like the league could do more and should do more. The Chiefs have done all they can. The Hall of Fame could do more. The NFL could do more. It would be great if there was an award every year that was named after Joe Delaney. I know there are many people out there who are deserving of having their names on awards. But the act of selflessness, extreme and permanent selflessness that we saw from Joe Delaney in June of 1983 is something that we all should remember. 
And it's something that shouldn't just be a June 29 issue. It's something that needs to be remembered all the time for all NFL fans. All right, let me take a look at some questions here. I don't have a whole lot of time today, so we're going to keep this short. Hang on one second. All right. Got some noise outside the office I'm trying to cut down before we keep going. We'll see if that happens or not. It's one of the realities of working at home. Sometimes there's noise in the home that can't be quickly rectified. Okay, let's see what we have here. Why am I always so mean to Mad Producer on KFAN? One time? I don't know what that means. Paul Allen. Who am I mean to? I'm mean to Nordo? I, I, I'm not mean to Nordo. I'm mean to Paul Allen. Nordo calls me every week when it's time to go on Paul Allen's show. And one, one thing I've noticed, <laughs> one thing I've noticed about radio producers over the years, this is something I've shared with the other writers at PFT. All the people who produce radio shows want to be the one on the air. And a lot of times when they interact with the guests, it's like in that simple five seconds, they use their radio voice as if they were on the air. And I don't always respond to that the way that the the producer would maybe hope. Uh, so may, maybe, that's, maybe that's why Paul Allen thinks I'm being mean to Nordo. He's trying out his radio voice with me when he calls me up on the phone, and I just don't respond to it the way that maybe he, he thinks I should because I've just got a pet peeve about radio producers who use those phone calls as a way to test out their chops on the guests for the moment when they're actually the host of the radio show anyway. <laughs> I didn't expect to be saying that today, but so be it. PFDPM Posse, what do you feel will be the next big revolution in sports, specifically the NFL? We've had HDTV, increased games on TV, gambling, et cetera, over the last however many years. What do you think slash hope could be next? I don't know that I hope this is going to be next, but I think what's going to be next is the explosion of in-game micro betting. And the technology is already out there to do it, even if the TV hasn't caught up with what you have on your phone. But I think we're going to see more and more states and more and more companies and more and more technologies that eventually allow us to watch a game, have that signal come through in real time, and we can place bets on the game as it's unfolding with that 40-second lag between plays being the moment that we lock in. Whatever it is, we're going to lock in for the next play. Is it going to be a run? Is it going to be a pass? Who's going to get the ball? How many yards is he gained? Over, under, three and a half yards for Alvin Kamara on the next rushing attempt, whatever it may be. That's what I think is going to revolutionize the way we watch football. And that's what's going to transform your home into a casino. And instead of standing at the craps table, and when you look at that felt with all those options, all those magnets for your chips, all the different things you can bet on, where the odds are calculated just in a way that you're going to lose over the long haul, they entice you. They tell you that field bet when you're playing dice. You look at all those numbers that pay off. All those numbers, two, three, four, five. Is it two, three, four, nine, 10, 11, 12, whatever it is, the field bet. That's the most addictive. That's the one we think, oh, look at all those numbers. I'm sure to win. They have it rigged just enough so you're going to lose over the long haul. Just enough. The odds are in the house's favor. You have a selection like that on your screen, on your phone. This entire menu of bets you can make one play at a time, a dollar or two at a time. That's what I think the next big revolution is going to be. And that's another reason for the NFL to be very concerned about protecting inside information, specifically who on the sideline knows 
what the next play is going to be and what are they doing to possibly signal to anyone watching in the stands or maybe watching at home that inside knowledge that they might possess. PFDPM Posse with the evolution of the tight end position. How truly underpaid are tight ends? Should a great receiving and blocking tight end be, the, be near the top of the left tackle wide receiver market? Look, I, 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 all I know is this. A great pass-catching tight end should be getting paid as much as a great receiver. Because a great pass-catching tight end, especially one that ends up in the slot a lot of the times, that's a guy that is making a difference. That is a guy that is impacting defenses. Remember, there was a time, 2015 or so, when the big question in the NFL was, how in the hell do you stop Rob Gronkowski? What do you do? I remember leading up to week one of that season when the Steelers were going to New England to take on the Patriots. What do you do? What do you do? Do you put a safety on him all the time? Do you have a linebacker chip him and then have somebody else pick him up? Do you go with your best corner? Do you just double team him everywhere he goes? The Steelers in that game, if you may recall, inadvertently went with the zero man coverage of Rob Gronkowski at one point. But a great tight end, especially one that forces defenses to adjust their game plan accordingly, should be paid like a great receiver, period. It shouldn't be driven by position. It should be driven by player. That's where the the logic of the franchise tag collapses onto itself. The franchise tag sometimes, for certain players, fails to reflect what that player is worth because that player is worth more than the position that he plays. I think it's one of the reasons Le'Veon Bell had issues with the Steelers and ultimately sat out a year. He viewed himself as a great running back and as a great pass catcher, but he was being saddled by the franchise tag for running backs. So I think Travis Kelsey should be getting a hell of a lot more than he's getting. And Chiefs fans are going to be upset. You're just trying to cause trouble. Well, no, I'm just trying to make sure that a guy who's a great player who's helping his team win football games is getting paid fairly for his efforts. Because again, the moment he's no longer producing the efforts to justify his pay is the moment that he's politely asked to pack his things and leave with a thank you on Twitter. Hey, at least they said thank you on Twitter when they told you, you're no longer worth what we're due to pay you, so we're firing you. But thank you, Travis Kelsey. That day is coming. <clears throat> Unless he retires and walks away on his own. And look, that happens, but it doesn't happen nearly as often as the guy wanting to stay but being involuntarily asked to leave with a thank you on Twitter for all that you've done. Matty B. Well. Are teams going to start treating the quarterback position the same way they treat the running back position if they don't find him a Holmes, Allen, Burrow? Four to five year rookie deal, then replace the quarterback in lieu of loads of guaranteed money for the next tier, like Kirk Cousins, et cetera. I think we're starting to see the quarterback position separate into different tiers. And this is the argument I made four years ago this month to the Rams. Publicly and very openly, even though... I was ridiculed for it by Rams fans, by media members who were covering the Rams, Fred Rogan in particular. I remember he did an interview with Sean McVay, painting me as a moron, frankly, for suggesting that they should not give Jared Goff a second contract. And they did. And two years later, they gave up a first round pick as a practical matter to unload the balance of the contract they never should have given Jared Goff. I think... Teams now need to accept that it's not enough to be pass-fail. You know, it used to be you're drafted, you play four or five years, pass-fail, pass. Pass means when your time 
comes for a new contract, you become the highest paid player in the NFL at the position. That doesn't work anymore. That doesn't happen anymore. So I think what needs to happen is teams need to be willing to say, you're not top tier. You fall into this tier. Here's what we're willing to pay you. And if you don't like it, we're going to find another quarterback. We're going to go in a different direction. We'll go out and draft a new quarterback. We'll sign somebody. We'll have a Band-Aid for a year or two. That's a dilemma the Vikings are going to face with Kirk Cousins after this year because he's going to want a significant bump over what he's currently getting. The market will support it. But is he good enough to truly justify it? Is he going to take the Vikings where they're trying to go? That's the challenge, though, because you let go of the bird in the hand. In search of the two in the bush, you may end up with none, and you may end up taking a backslide and then waiting to bottom out in the hopes that you can draft that franchise quarterback, get the most out of him under his rookie deal, and then deal with the fact that you have to pay him a lot of money if you choose to do so, if he ends up becoming the guy that you hope he was going to be. Dalip Rao, while I agree completely about the most current players not striking over future benefits that may or may not accrue to them, what about striking for fully guaranteed pay? That would affect them immediately. Fully guaranteed pay is something that arose in baseball and basketball without a CBA term. It just kind of happened. And there are some agents, players, people in the union trying to make it more universal in the NFL. There would be very strong unintended consequences from fully guaranteed contracts across the board. What would happen is contracts would be shorter. Now, that may be better for players, but players who want to stay in a certain place, you're doing one year at a time or two years at a time. If you want fully guaranteed contracts, they're not going to give you five, six years. If all contracts are fully guaranteed, all contracts become shorter, and you're going to have a lot more movement every single year. And hey, that's good for my business. Free agency becomes more robust. Every two or three years, the best players in the NFL become available. Sign me up for that. But is that really in everyone's best interest? And they're also going to pay less if these contracts are all fully guaranteed. So I don't know that that's the answer to anything. And I just, I don't think that whatever it is the union would be looking for, to answer the question, Whatever the union would be looking for, I don't think the current rank and file, I don't think football players are wired to care enough about that to give up what they have right now. Even if it's going to help them next year, they don't want to give up what they have right now. And the point I made earlier in the week, let's let's play it out. Players strike for a full year, no football for a full year. Then the following year, the strike is over, everyone's back. And here comes the crop of draft picks and undrafted free agents who played football last year, who may be in a better position to win roster spots over the guys who sat out all year, who are still making more money than these guys at the bottom of the roster. Could you see multiple teams decide, we're just going to go with a youth movement this year. We're going to get rid of all these guys who sat around doing nothing last year, refusing to play football, striking at a time when we had an offer on the table that was fair. It's another thing that you need to be concerned about when you consider the possibility of shutting it down for a full year. Again, it makes the playing field not equal. And I think the NFL could frankly go even harder in its effort to try to get better terms than it has. I think the NFL is sensitive to not throwing things completely out of whack. That's why it's so important that the union have an executive director who can go toe-to-toe with the league to try to even out the playing field or at a minimum maintain the imbalance that currently exists. I need to take a break here soon. One more. Uh, Not a break. I need to take a break till the next time we do PFTPM. Paul Bellwig, 
Should the NFL consider bringing back the World League or maybe the XFL or USFL should look into Europe? Seems like a great concept for a spring league and international expensive. It's, it, expansion is too expensive. That's why the NFL stopped doing it. They weren't making a profit from it. Are these spring leagues making a profit? I don't know that they are yet. I think the XFL has some projections about when they'll actually start turning a profit. Bottom line is spring football is not a profitable enterprise. If it was, the NFL would still be in it. The NFL got out of it because they finally said, why are we spending all this money? We don't need a developmental league. There's still 53 roster spots. What what do we care if another Kurt Warner could have come out of NFL Europe? There's going to be somebody else who emerges from what we currently do. We don't need to spend all this money. We don't need to operate in the red just in the hope that we're going to trip over somebody because it's still 53 guys on each team. Somebody's going to get the reps. Somebody's going to emerge. We don't have to create this separate environment, this incubator for maybe somebody who never would have made it under the current structure of the NFL. They emerge and their career is fueled by that. They just It's still going to be a good business model or they're not going to do it. That's why they haven't done it. One last one. From MTTB, any idea why Sky Sports have stopped showing? Yes, I have a very good idea. And I thought we've been over this. PFT Live is on hiatus. There is no show to show until July 27th, when we'll be back. Until then, it's PFTPM. I'm eight for eight in the weekdays that we have been off of PFT Live. Tomorrow, I will not be doing it because it's annual physical time, as previously mentioned. Friday, I intend to do one. Next week, we'll see how things go with the 4th of July and all of that. The following week, I'm going to be on vacation at an undisclosed location. Maybe I'll do some from there. We'll see. But before you know it, we'll be back on Sky because we'll be back in our studios making PFT Live on a daily basis. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Well, I'm back sooner than I expected because we have to have a little supplemental conversation to what we discussed earlier regarding the NFL Players Association's search for a new executive director. Now, everything I said earlier still applies, but we now know who the new executive director will be. If anything, everything I said earlier applies even more strongly. This confidential search that leads to the hiring of someone that no one had heard of, somebody who is completely beyond the entire NFL ecosystem, Lloyd Howell. I had never heard of him. He comes from a business background. He's got 34 years with Booz Allen Hamilton, 
a variety of leadership roles, most recently the chief financial officer and treasurer. He led the company's civil and commercial group. He serves on the board of Moody's Corporation and General Electric Healthcare and is a trustee for the University of Pennsylvania. This doesn't sound like Jimmy Hoffa. This, this doesn't sound like a union leader. This sounds like a member of management. This sounds like if there was going to be a Manchurian candidate, if the NFL was going to try to slip someone through unknowingly who would be in bed with the owners, this sounds like the dude. <laughs> Nobody knows how he came to be a candidate. Nobody knows who had the idea to pursue him. Did he pursue the job? Did the job pursue him? Why is this person the executive director? Why was he even one of the finalists? See, they're very proud of the fact that they were able to keep this secret. J.C. Treader, the NFLPA president, tweeted this. It is my pleasure to welcome Lloyd Howell as our new executive director. I am proud that our player leadership ran a professional confidential search for the players by the players. I know Lloyd will lead our union well into the future. Okay. Professional and confidential aren't necessarily synonymous. Certain things need to be confidential. Certain things cross the line from confidential into unnecessarily and improperly secret. And the first question is, did the player representatives know about Lloyd Howell for at least 30 days? Did they know of the total candidates? Because there had to be at least one more. Who was the other candidate? Did the board of player representatives know who the other candidates were, whether one or more than one, for at least 30 days before the vote? Was that provision of the Constitution complied with? Yes or no? Easy question. I asked that question earlier today to the union. Are they complying with this provision in the Constitution? Does it apply? Was it changed? Again, they're not telling us. And I understand this whole thing is about creating an us against the world mentality, circling the wagons. It's very relevant to the way football is often played. It's all about us. Let's shut out the rest of the world. Everybody else is out to get us. There's a point, though, where it goes too far. There's a point where it it is so shrouded in secrecy that you don't do justice to the process. Someone else is making the decision, and the decision is being basically forced on everyone else. Who ultimately decided that Lloyd Howell who has no NFL background, no union background, if anything, is a management person who is going to become a union person after 34 years. Look, I don't know how old this person is, unless we're dealing with a Doogie Hauser, though. We're talking about somebody who's about my age, who's going to be the, the executive director well into the future. We got to do the math here. You want somebody who's going to be executive director well into the future, you better not hire somebody who's got 34 years of service in a completely different industry. And I'm not saying the guy is going to fail. All I'm saying is who decided that he's the right person? When was the board of player representatives made available uh, the information? Did they comply with the Constitution? Who were the other candidates? Is this going to be a good hire? Is it going to be a bad hire? And what you're going to see now is a lot of wagons circling by the players because they managed to pull off this idea of keeping the process confidential, keeping it secret, that that's a victory in and of itself. And if, if the objective is let's hire an executive director as quietly as we possibly can and make sure no one knows who the candidates are, then I guess it counts as a victory. But I don't think that should be the objective. 
The objective shouldn't be let's stick a finger in all prying eyes and manage to do a completely and totally confidential search process. That shouldn't be the goal. The goal should be finding the best person for the job. And if it means sacrificing some confidentiality to find the best person for the job, so be it. Because the impression that it creates to me is somebody in this broader process, which apparently wasn't very broad at all, decided that Lloyd Howell's the guy. And in the name of keeping it all secret, they 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 made that decision and they they worked very discreetly to build the coalition, to form the consensus, so just enough players, specifically members of the board of player representatives, would vote for Lloyd Howell. And the information was kept quiet. The information possibly wasn't disseminated, as it should have been at least 30 days before the vote. And they were able to pull it off. We pulled it off. That was our victory. No one knew this was coming. Yeah, yeah, we surprised Everyone. Yeah. Okay, great. What kind of a union leader is this person going to be? Is this the best person for the job? Is this person best suited to take over this role well into the future? So you've won the battle of keeping it all secret. How are you going to win the war of having the best possible executive director to go toe to toe with Roger Goodell and his successor well into the future with a new CBA looming in six or seven years. Is this going to be someone who, who, who flourishes in the job? Or is this going to be someone who eventually does whatever the best deal is that the NFL offers? And is the NFL offered to inclined or inclined to offer even less of a deal than what they otherwise would because they don't perceive Lloyd Howell as the kind of strong union leader that, that they otherwise would. So I, I'm stunned by this. I thought it would at least be someone I've heard of. And, and this may be part of what the union was trying to do. And, and I understand their concern that you've got people out there in the media maybe working against them. You've got owners that would want to work against them. I think the paranoia got in the way of finding the right person. And maybe Lloyd Howell is the right person. But he, here's the problem. If you want us in the media to immediately say, hey, you got the right person for the job, you got to get us on board with the idea. If you're going to do something very unconventional, you need to get some people on board with it and you need people to be preparing the audience, the players generally, for the idea that we're going to do something unconventional, but it's going to be good. Not we're going to do something unconventional and we don't know what's going to happen. So the reaction that a lot of the media are going to have is, who is this person? Is this the best choice? And did they allow secrecy to get in the way of finding the best possible candidate? I feel like they put way too much stock in keeping it secret. And possibly, possibly not enough stock in getting the best possible successor to DeMora Smith. Time will tell. And I'm going to roll up my sleeves and I'm going to dig into it. I'm going to get all the information I can about Lloyd Howell. And I'm going to try to find what in his background after 34 years with Booz Allen would suggest that he's in the best possible position to take over the union right now and moving forward. 
and, and apparently DeMora Smith is still going to be in charge through the end of 2024. So there's going to be a ramping up process as, as Lloyd Howell learns the job. Again, that, that only increases my curiosity about why it was decided that he's the best person for the job. Ideally, you'd want somebody who could take over right away. These are the natural questions, though, that come up when it's just dropped in front of us with no warning, with no advance notice, with no opportunity to figure out who this guy is. They pull the sheet unexpectedly off of someone that no one in the NFL had heard of, other than the people who were privy to that very closely guarded information about who the executive director of the union would be. That's all I'm going to say about it for now. And again, no PFT PM tomorrow. Uh, maybe when I get back from my physical, I'll find time to do something depending upon the developments with this. And, and I know most fans don't care who's in charge of the NFL Players Association. One of the things I learned over the weekend, there are players out there who didn't even know that DeMora Smith is the person in charge of the union. They're not connected. They're not invested. They don't care the way they could or should. That's one of the reasons why this process was able to proceed in extreme secrecy. But for those of us who care about the NFL, there needs to be a balance between the league and the union. And if it gets too far out of balance, it sets the stage for labor problems that can impact the playing of the games and that can impact our enjoyment of the sport. And we all want to have a sport to cover. We all want to have a sport to enjoy. And I think it all flows from, if there's going to be a unionized workforce, it flows from having a union that is able to stand up to the league on a constant basis and fight for everything that the players deserve on every issue, financially, health and safety, anything and everything. And it's it's in the union's best interest not to have a secret process but to have a successful process that leads them to the right person who will have the proper understanding of the game, not be learning it on the fly, the proper understanding of the game, how the business works, how the league works, and how to stand up to the NFL and push back against the league. I need to know, don't we all need to know what it was that they saw in Lloyd Howe that makes them think he's the one to take up that slingshot against Goliath? And maybe... Maybe he is, but the rest of us don't know. Now the challenge for the union comes, uh, becomes helping us all understand exactly what they saw in Lloyd Howe that made him the best candidate. So the rest of us can say, yeah, hey, Roger Goodell better run and hide when Lloyd Howell walks through the door because now he's met his match and the union's got a voice that's going to push back and there's going to be grass fields everywhere. And we're going to do something about guaranteed contracts and we're going to do something about the franchise tag and we're going to do something about this and we're going to do something about that. And and the NFL's got a problem now because there's a new sheriff in town and his name is Lloyd Howell. We don't know that. We can't even begin to come to that conclusion. So that's going to be what I begin to try to find out in the coming hours and days and, and whatever it is, whatever I'll ask the union, give me everything that you need for me to know about Lloyd Howell and how he got this job and why you believe he's the person to take this union through the next decade, the rest of this decade and into the new collective bargaining agreement, the negotiation of which will be here before we know it. That's it for now. 
Thanks, as always, for some of your time. Check out ProFootballTalk.com for updates on this and every other story currently happening in the NFL. And we'll talk to you again soon. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. 